part of our gathering together and worshiping the Lord and experiencing His presence includes, actually focuses in many ways on hearing Him from His Word. He's giving us uh, a book that's an amazing book. It's His very words. And He's given us this book because He loves us. He wants us to, to hear from Him and know uh, what life is about and how to live life in Him and how to walk in His ways. So in His kindness, He's given us His Word. And so we as a church... Uh, Spend time, certainly in worship and in our fellowship, focusing on the Word, but also hearing the Word taught and preached. And we're also blessed as a church to have a a number of men that are gifted uh, to teach. I'm very thankful as a pastor who's called to, uh, as a lead pastor, to to care and shepherd this church through the Word, to have a number of men who I can look to as well. Uh, Peg and I were able to go away for a short vacation this week, and it's such a pleasure to to be able to have Alex preach uh, last Sunday, and from what I've heard, did an excellent job bringing God's Word. Thank you, Alex. And uh, this Sunday, we get to hear from our own Jeff Havisto, one of our deacons, and a gifted man as well. So, uh, so let's welcome Jeff up as he comes to bring us the Word. Thank you, Jeff. continue our series on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 38 to 42 is where we're going to be there. But before we look at the uh, word, I'm going to try to get this higher. Oh. <laughs> All right, I'm going to leave it right where it is. <laughs> All right. All right. Suppose you go out to dinner with some friends. You're having a great time. You're laughing. Everyone's having fun. You're there with your with your spouse, everyone's having a great time, and then your spouse insults you. They embarrass you in front of all of your friends. What do you do for the rest of the evening? Where do your thoughts go for the rest of that dinner after you stay there? And what happens when you get home? (laughs) We've all been at that dinner, and we've all been at the other side of that dinner when we've seen a husband and a wife who insult each other and argue the whole night as they try to go back and forth. And we've just kind of like hoped that evening would end soon. Now suppose you're at work. It's Friday night. you got big plans. You're going. Everyone at home is waiting for you to get there. You're just about to leave when your boss comes up. He says, I've got one more job for you to do. You have to do it tonight. And he tells you what it is, and you realize that this isn't your job. This is the slacker's job. And somehow or another, he weasels out of it again, and he's gone. So now you're going to be late, and you might have to cancel all your plans. And you have to call home and explain how come you're not going to be there. How do you spend the rest of the day? How do you spend your time doing that job? What is it that goes through your head? Do you daydream the rest of the day about how you want to tell your boss off in front of everybody else? and you want to put the weasel in his place at the same time? See, these thoughts that go through of retaliation and revenge are so common. And we see this all the time, day to day. It's part of our fallen nature. We can see two kids, right? They're playing on the floor, and there's a stack of coloring books on a table. And one of the kids gets up, grabs the coloring book, takes it off and starts to color. The other kid says, oh, that looks great. I want to do that, too. 
They walk up, they reach up, they grab one of the books, and the other kid yanks it out of his hand and says, you didn't share your cookies with me, I'm not going to share this book with you. Can't we see that? It starts so early, and it starts so young. How many of the action movies are based on the idea of revenge? And when you leave the theater, how do you feel? Like you, you want a piece of that yourself. You want some revenge. Why do these movies do so well? Because they touch something in your heart, that desire for retaliation, that desire for revenge that seems to be so inherent in all of us. So today we're going to look at, we're going to see, what does Jesus tell us about retaliation? What does he say about revenge? So if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, we're going to take a look at this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. John Stott, we have a quote on the board, or we will in a second here. He says this about this passage, because I thought this was uh, very good. He says, in the two final antitheses, by that he means, we've just seen these where Christ says, you have heard it said this, but I say this. So he says, in the two final antitheses, it brings us to the highest point on the Sermon of the Mount, for which it is both most admired and most resented. Namely, the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards the one who is evil, verse 39, that's today, and our enemies, verse 44, that's next week. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. Let's pray quick as we uh, look, dig into this further. Father God, we come before you now. And we recognize that we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to even understand what it is that you're telling us, let alone to follow it. So, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will open up our hearts. I pray that you will convict us this morning. I pray that you will let us see where our sin lies, that we might repent. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll give us the power to do what it is that Jesus has told us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we need to do is figure out what this is that Jesus is condemning us for before we look at what he says we're supposed to do. He says, you've heard us said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where he takes that from is the Old Testament. There's three different places that it's found. And these passages contain instructions to the judges of Israel, what they're supposed to do. And so it tells them what the punishment should be, and it tells them what the compensation should be for the person who gets it. So John Stott says, It had the double effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. See, when something wrong is done, we want the punishment to fit the crime. Matthew Henry says, 
It's not a life for an eye, and it's not a limb for a tooth, but it is a proportion. Our legal system has a name for this. It's called quid pro quo, which literally means something for something. So that's what it was designed to do. What were they doing in Jesus' day? They were using it for all of living. They were using it for personal retaliation. They were using it for personal revenge. What was meant for the courts and for the judges ended up transferring into everyday life. One more quote here. This one's from John MacArthur, who explains this so well. And he says this. He says, The Old Testament did not allow an individual to take the law into his own hands and to apply it personally. Yet that is exactly what rabbinic tradition had done. Each man was permitted, in effect, to become his own judge, jury, and executioner. God's law was turned to individual license, and civil justice was perverted to personal vengeance. Instead of properly acknowledging the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as a limit on punishment, they conveniently used it as a mandate for vengeance. What God gave as a restriction on civil courts, Jewish tradition had turned into a personal license for revenge. This core teaching about this passage is about revenge. It's about retaliation. And so in this passage, Jesus told, teaches us or shows us four areas where we are the most vulnerable to having this attitude of retaliation. He lists out four ones. The first area, he says, is when someone slaps you on the right cheek. And what does this mean? One more quote. And I think we might even be done for the quotes, but... I want to keep putting it up, but sometimes people say better. This one's by Kent Hughes. And he says this. He says, notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek, which tells us, which he is describing, a backhanded slap, since most people are right-handed. According to the rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting him with the flat of the hand. The back of the hand meant calculated contempt and withering disdain. So this is clearly to insult us. This is attack on our pride. How do we react when these things happen to us? Sometimes they're intentional, but sometimes they're unintentional. And yet, how do we react to this? When someone insults us, when our spouse embarrasses us, when someone at work laughs at us, or if our brother or our sister make fun of us, do we instantly retaliate? The second place he mentions, this place where we fall in this attitude is when someone sues you or someone takes you to court. See, when that happens, we have no control. Whatever the judge decides, that's what happens. Maybe the court gets it wrong, and there's just nothing that you can do. An especially difficult situation in our day and age are divorces and child custody battles. Because what the court says is what happens, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And sometimes, sometimes it feels very unfair. And the danger is, is that we spend years and years dwelling on this and letting it eat away at us. And we go through and we just we can't let it go and we just keep on imagining it. And it eats away inside to the point where we just hope that our ex dies and then it will be all over. 
And this is the danger of this attitude of this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The third place he mentions this attitude is when someone forces you to go one mile. This is a situation where someone in authority requires you to do something. You're forced to do it, and you don't want to do it. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. No one else has to do it, but I have to do it. And there's nothing that you can do about it. When that happens, once again, what does your mind go to? And what do you think about when you're forced to do these things? The final place he mentions that this attitude comes in is with our money. When people beg, when people borrow, and we feel compelled to do this. We had other plans for that money. We really don't have extra money at this time. And if we do feel like we're forced to give it, how do you feel when you give it? What is the attitude? What is this that takes place in your heart? This is what uh, Jesus is teaching us about. And then what happens when we take this attitude and we bring it into the house? When we bring it home with us, what does this do? When our lives become filled with retaliation at the littlest things, whether these are intentional things or not, and we instantly bite back, and we fight, and we have that uh, cutting, joking humor, this comes into our house and it ends up being pettiness, shortness, anger. It becomes an attitude of, how dare you speak to me? How dare you look at me like that? How dare you do that to me? And even if we don't say it, those are still the thoughts that run through our mind. Have you and your marriage set up that? So it's continually repeated over and over just for the littlest things that your spouse does wrong that irritates you. Young people, how do you live with your brothers and your sisters? Do you do the same thing for every little offense? See, these habits that you get into now are so critical because you're going to take these with you for the rest of your life. You will have these that you develop now. When you picture raising a family, getting married, is this the way you picture it, the way that you treat your brother or your sister? This is why this is so critical. And see, this attitude can overtake you, and it can consume you, it can overwhelm you. So this is what Jesus is warning us against. This is what an eye for an eye, this is what a tooth for a tooth is. It's this whole attitude. And it's one of the, it's one of the enemy's choicest weapons. He loves to use this, this one. See, he wants you to worship anything but God. He doesn't care what it is. He doesn't care if it's money or if it's sports or if it's possessions or what. But one of the things he can get you to worship is revenge. Think about Esau back in Genesis. Jacob and Esau, their brothers. Esau the older of the two. And so he's entitled to two things, the birthright and the blessing. He's got these two things coming to him. So Esau's out hunting one day, and he's gone for a long time. He has no luck whatsoever. Can't get anything, and he comes back and he's starving. He sees Esau making, I mean, he sees Jacob making some red stew, and he asks him for some. And so Jacob doesn't want to give it, and they go back and forth, and Jacob says, if you give me your birthright, I'll give you the stew. And so Esau says, well, what gives my birthright? If I die, I'll do it. And so he trades it. He trades his birthright for stew. But this festers inside, and it builds up, and it 
spurns at him. Because we can tell, because later on he's talking to his dad, and he's talking about, he says, he cheated me. He took away my inheritance. Pretty soon the father's going to die. He calls in Esau, his oldest son, and he tells him, I'm going to die, and I want to bless you. I want to give you the blessing. So what I want you to do is go out, I want you to get some game, I want you to bring it back, and I want you to cook it, and then I'm going to give you the blessing. So Esau goes out. He's gone to get the game. Esau and Jacob's mother hears that. So she tells Jacob, I'm going to cook some food. I want you to go in there and get the blessing. Wear his clothes. He's an outdoors man so that you'll uh, smell like him. And I'll make the food just the way he likes it so he'll be tricked. He's almost blind. He won't know the difference. And so Jacob goes in there, and he does it. And his dad is tricked. He doesn't know the difference. He says, you sound like Jacob, but you feel and you smell like Esau. He gets the blessing. Esau gets back. He finds out about it, and he is living. His father dies. He says, the days of mourning for my father are almost over, and then I will kill my brother, Jacob. Mom finds out about it. She goes to Jacob, and she tells him to leave, to go away, and listen to the reason why she tells him to leave. She says, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself, about you by planning to kill you. You see that? He comforts himself by planning to kill you. He plans it. He daydreams it. He thinks about it all the time. He can't get it out of his mind. This anger that he has because of this cannot be released. Do you comfort yourself with thoughts of revenge? Do you daydream about taking vengeance on those who have wronged you? Do you replay those events over and over in your mind? See, this attitude will destroy you if you do. You cannot have this attitude and follow Christ's commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He said, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say resist not the evil one. So, before we go any further than this, we want to look at the root of this attitude. Where does this come from? We're just going to look at two of them, but it's important that if we find out where this comes from, where this root is, it's easier to deal with it at the root if we can. So, there are many, probably, but just to look at two. The first one um, is pride. Someone has insulted us. Someone has embarrassed us. We have felt the shot and the sting of being slapped across the face. Our pride has been injured. Maybe our manhood has been questioned. We lash out in anger and we seek revenge. These are where the how dare you statements come in. The second one. Another root is the fear of not being in control. Think about these situations, right? Someone slaps you and they insult you. It's beyond your control. Someone takes you to court. The judge's side is completely beyond your control. Someone in authority forces you to do something that you don't want to do. In every single one of these situations, it's someone else that's in control. And see, our desire is to be in control. Right? How many times do we hear this? Take control of your destiny. Be your own boss. Make your future happen. And here, in these situations, not only can we not make our future happen, we can't even control the now. 
we can't even control the present and what things go through. And so to take this even further, this fear of not being in control comes from a lack of faith in God. It's not believing that God is the one who is in control. It's not believing that God is sovereign. Or it's not believing that God is either able to take care of us or that he's not willing to take care of us. And so we fall back in this attitude. Now, if I were to ask you, do you think God is sovereign? Do you think he is able to take care of you or willing to take care of you? You would say yes. But what happens in those times, in those moments? We fall back on ourselves and that fear. And so this control starts to slip away. We do anything we can do to hang on to it. And we lose sight of God and his sovereignty. And we become blinded, first by fear and then by revenge but we must fall back and live on the promises of God. So what is it that Jesus does tell us to do? Because that's what we want to avoid, the problem of having that attitude of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would sue and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, he tells us to do the opposite of what comes naturally. The opposite of retaliation. The opposite of hate. In all these situations, he tells us to give. To give your other cheek. To give your cloak. To give another mile. To give your money. He says in another passage, lend, expecting nothing in return. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, Jesus is asking us to do something radical. He's asking us to not only forgive, but to give and to bless in those situations where our natural thing is retaliation. 1 Peter 3 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. It's not only don't fight back, right? That would be hard enough. But it's give. It's give to them these things as well. And even as we look at Jesus, right, he doesn't just forgive us, but he clothes us in righteousness. And he gives us eternal life with him. See, these things that we face can be so big that we feel like we can't get over them, that they're going to overtake us. And Jesus is saying, don't let it. Don't retaliate. Don't worry about trying to take back everything. Spurgeon says this. He says, Lord, give me a patient spirit so that I may not seek to avenge myself even when I might righteously do so. So he's talking about the revenge there. So whether it's your pride, or your dignity, or your money, or even if it's your children in the case of a divorce in a custody. Don't let it ruin your life if these things are taken away. Don't let it ruin your life. If it's child custody, do everything you can in your power to get the time with your kids as much as you can. 
But don't let what you don't have consume your entire life. Don't let what you can't have consume your entire life so it's spent in bitterness and anger and resentment and revenge and retaliation. Let these things go. It's just your money or your pride. Don't let it control you. See, God is in control, and he'll watch over for you. He will provide for you. He will protect you. He will see you safely through. If he cares about the sparrows, he cares about you. God also tells us that if we do this, we will get a blessing. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. There's a blessing for us if we follow God in these ways. If we live this way, it will also result in God's glory, and it will result in the souls of others. As we think about how the world responds to these situations, and Christ is asking us to respond the exact opposite. And when we don't seek an eye for an eye, and we don't seek tooth for the tooth, but instead we give, this is when our light shines the brightest. This is when we are the most different from the world. This is when others will see Christ in us the most, and they will see God's love for us the most. And then God will be glorified. And they will say, what must I do to be saved? So as we look at this passage, it's always important to look at passages and see what they say. But we also want to see what it is that they don't say or what they don't mean. So we want to look at three things. What does it not mean personally, civilly? And we just want to look at the problem of justice. So personally, what does it not mean? Personally, this doesn't mean that you're to be a doormat. You're to be wimpy. You're never to stand up for yourself. It doesn't mean to avoid conflict when conflict is necessary. See, some of us do this naturally because of our personality or because of our temperament. It's just easy to go with the flow. It's just easy to not uh, ruffle any feathers at all. But some of you do need to make a stand. And some of you do need to do the right thing. This is a teaching on not taking revenge. It's not a teaching on not taking a stand for what is right. What does it not mean civilly? It doesn't mean that we should abandon our legal system or let criminals go away and punish. The government and authority are God's plans. To not use them is unbiblical. We don't want to twist this passage into what it doesn't say. Uh, we have an overhead for this. John Stott says this. He says, We cannot take Jesus' command, resist that evil, as an absolute prohibition of the use of all the force, including the police, unless we are prepared to say that the Bible contradicts itself and that the apostles misunderstood Jesus. For the New Testament teaches that the state is a divine institution, commissioned both to punish the wrongdoer, i.e. to resist the one who is evil, to the point of making him bear the penalty for his evil, and to reward those who do good. When it comes to giving, we are not called to be foolish, to give without any discernment, We're not called to be taken advantage of so that others will steal and cheat without any um, consequence at all. We're not called to help others along the road to destruction. We're not called to give others so that they don't have to work. 1 Thessalonians says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And so the giving part isn't foolish giving. Third, what about justice? And the question about that. See, we all 
have the sense of what justice is, and we hate to see things go unpunished. But this passage doesn't teach that, that God doesn't punish these things. Romans 12:19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So we rely on God for justice. And Jesus Christ himself relied on God for justice. First Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We need to say that God is in control and evil will be punished, even if I can't see when it's going to be punished or how it's going to be punished. The next question is, how do we do this? How do we turn the other cheek? How do we give our cloak? How do we walk the extra mile? When these situations come up at work or at home or with our family, with our friends, with our brothers and sisters, how is it that we're going to have the ability to do this and the power? It is only by the power of the Spirit. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. Read what it says. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, Against such things, there is no law. See, without this, we can never go from not retaliating and not turning back to what Christ has called us to do, which is to love. And so we need the Spirit's love. We need his joy. We need his self-control. We need his peace. We need his patience. We need his gentleness and his kindness. And here it's saying that God will give it. The Holy Spirit will give us these things. John Stott said, no words are needed the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. We can only do this by faith in God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can only do this by letting go of these earthly things, these things that we cling to so strongly, our pride. We also need to be aware just of the danger of just letting this creep into our lives. And when we find ourselves falling into this pattern, if this is what our life has become, this retaliation and this revenge and this pettiness all the time, then we need to pray that God will forgive us. And we need to pray that God will release us from that and that God will give us the power to overcome that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. One more thing is that we need to realize that this is for the long term, that this is for our life. See, the next cheek or the next coat might not be the same person, but it might be a different person. Or it might be the same person, but it might be at a different time. It might not be right away. But this is going to continue on and on. We're always going to have those people at work or those people that we know that just constantly do this. So we need to persevere in this. So I said a whole bunch of stuff. And I kind of threw it out. Here's a piece, here's a piece, here's a piece, here's a piece, here's a piece. Sometimes it's kind of hard to follow along. You get a piece here, a piece there, a piece there. So let's put it all together. Let's, talk, let's take all the pieces together. Let's look at a picture so we can see what this looks like in 
action. And maybe some of the stuff that you heard but didn't quite understand will fit together now. So, take a look at Acts chapter 16. And you don't need to turn to it. I'm just going to summarize what the story is. But if you want to read it, it's Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, the Apostle Paul, takes Silas with them. And they go into a country called Philippi. And they're there, and they're, they're building churches, and they're, and they're preaching, and they're going on the way. And they've been there for about three days. And everywhere they go, there's this slave girl who continues to follow them. And she keeps crying out and yelling and yelling. After three days, Paul can finally take no more of it. He turns around, and he casts the demon out of her. Now, she was a fortune teller. And she had her owners that would go around and she would tell fortunes and that's how they made their money. Now that the girl can't tell fortunes anymore, these guys are furious because they have no income whatsoever. So they stir up this crowd. They rise up this big crowd against Paul and Silas. And this crowd comes in and they start to um, um, beat them. And the magistrates, the government officials come in as well. And they strip them down and they beat them with rods without really knowing what's going on. And then they throw Paul and Silas into jail. Clearly we can say that they struck him on the right cheek. The middle of the night comes. It's midnight. What do you think is going on in Paul and Silas's head? Do you think they're filled with rage? Do you think they're filled with revenge? Do you think they are saying, how dare you do this to me? No. You know what they're doing? They're praying And they're singing in the middle of the night. See, we want to replace the spirit of retaliation that's inside of us with the spirit of God. We want the spirit to replace this. So that in the middle of the night, when we're in prison, we can pray and we can sing. Or when we're at work. Or when we're at home. We can pray and we can sing. So all the prisoners are listening to him. And an earthquake strikes. All the doors open up. All the prisoners can go free if they want to go free. The jailer wakes up. He looks out and he sees every single one of these doors open. He assumes that the prisoners escape. He takes his sword and he's going to kill himself. You see back then... The rule that he had to live by was a life for an escaped prisoner. If these prisoners escape, he calls for his life. Paul jumps up in front of him and he yells, don't do it, we're still all here. And the jailer runs to him and he says, what must I do to be saved? And that night he and his whole family are saved. See, they turn the cheek. They gave him their cloak as well as their tunic. They went the extra mile by not leaving. They gave the beggar his very life in the case of this jailer. So the next morning, the jailer comes in, says the magistrates say you can go, you're free to leave, goodbye. And then Paul stands up to him and he says this. He says, they have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned Men who are Roman citizens, they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come down themselves and take us out. 
the officials are now terrified once they find out that these guys are Roman citizens because what they did was a huge, huge crime. To beat them, uncondemned, publicly, to throw them into prison. So they go down there. And they apologize. And they tell them that they're free to go. Now see, Paul goes to the government officials. And he goes to the law. Not for retaliation. He could have had retaliation in the middle of the night. Because not only would have he left and Silas left, but every single one of those prisoners would have left with him. The guard's life would have been lost. All these guys would have been in trouble. He could have had retaliation in the middle of the night. But in the middle of the night, he's praying God and he's singing hymns. So why does he go to the government officials now, the next morning when they come down there? It's for those coming behind him. Paul is in Philippi. It's a brand new country. He's setting up churches there. And he wants these new Christians who will be weak and who won't be able to stand up for themselves to be able to do that. He wants the government officials to have a healthy fear of respect so that they don't abuse their power. So they leave Philippi. And instead of an eye for an eye, they do not resist the evil one. But they give and they bless. And God is glorified. And people are saved because of it. The jailer, after seeing what they did, said, what must I do to be saved? The band can come up as we look at the final picture. The final picture, as we put this all together, is of Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. Jesus Christ came to his own, and his own received him not. They arrested him. They slapped him. They blindfolded him. They beat him. They said, prophesy, tell us who it is that struck you. They dressed him up in robes, royal robes, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they mocked him. They made him carry his own cross to his death. They nailed him to the cross. They hung him there. Everyone who walked by mocked him. It says they wagged their tongues at him. Jesus is God. He could have called out legions of angels at any time, and he didn't. With one breath, he could have annihilated everybody and wiped them out, but he didn't. He turned the other cheek. He gave him his tunic, his cloak, his body, and his life. He went the first mile and the second mile. To we who are beggars, he gave. First Peter 2.23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. John Stott, this is the standard which Jesus asked, and it is the standard which he himself fulfilled. Turn the other cheek. Don't let retaliation and revenge control you. Follow Christ in love and forgiveness. Turn to him who judges justly. And pray that God will replace that spirit of retaliation with his spirit of love. Father God, we come before you. 
And as we reflect on this message that you have given us, Lord, that it is not to be eye for an eye and tooth for the tooth, Lord. We are not called for that. We are not called to be filled with a spirit of retaliation so that we take out everything all the time on everybody, especially those we love the most. You have not called us for that. But Lord, you have called us to love, to have joy, to have peace, to have patience, to have kindness. You have called us to for goodness, Lord, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So, Lord, we pray that you will take away the spirit of retaliation and give us your spirit of love, Lord. In your name we pray.